I'm Hemant Metta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website, so if you want your podcast swag, some shirts, mugs, baby onesies, Hemant, you're going to get a baby onesie for your kiddo? Of course. Yeah. Go to our website and click on the store tab. We're brought to you today by Foundation Marketing. If you own a small business, then you know how frustrating advertising can be. Foundation Marketing offers all-encompassing solutions backed by 20 years' experience. This includes professional web design, graphic design, printing, and online marketing solutions. They are a certified Google partner and offer free consultation. Visit them online at fmkg.net. Let them know you were sent by the Friendly Atheist podcast and you'll get 10% off any sale. They're also donating 20% of all sales driven by this podcast to the Clergy Project and Foundation Beyond Belief, 10% each. Once again, check them out at fmkg.net. Dr. Elizabeth Drescher is a professor of religious studies at Santa Clara University and the author, most recently, of Choosing Our Religion, The Spiritual Lives of America's Nuns. Thank you so much for joining us today, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's, I mean, let's start with the title. Uh, Nuns are N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, just for clarification. Um, So usually spirituality and atheism or nuns don't often coincide. What's your experience been with that? Well, I'm not sure that I would say that that's that's true, although I made some assumptions when I started the project um, that follow along that line, um, although from the opposite direction. Um, So, you know, we we know a lot, we hear a lot about the spiritual but not religious, Mm -hmm. um, and we know that um, a large proportion of people who identify as spiritual but not religious are not affiliated with religious institutions. Um, And so when you ask them what their religion is or what they identify as, they say none. And I was really interested in um, how people um, construct spiritual lives, what it means to be a spiritual person outside of traditional religions. And I had a strong inkling, both from my own experience and observation, that the things that are measured by demographers like Gallup and Pew and Harris and all those folks, um, maybe were not things that people were counting in their religious lives. Um, but I really did think that um, the people I, were going, I was going to be talking with initially were going to be people that demographers count as quote-unquote religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S-S, um, people who... Um, are not affiliated with an institutional religious religion, but nonetheless maintain some measure of belief in a supernatural being or power, uh, whether that's a traditional God figure or something else, um, and that their spirituality would be oriented around that. So initially, that's who I was going to talk with. But when I started talking about that in public and the way that I tend to do as a, as a writer while I'm beginning research, um, in an early piece, I got a lot of feedback from people who identified as atheists, as secular, as secular humanists, as humanists, as uh, emphatic nuns, 
um, which is a category that I wish I'd thought of when I was writing the book. Oh. <laughs> um, but the kind of nunniest of nuns, um, <laughs> is that I'm completely, you know, non-theistic, but I have a spirituality. I, I believe in the human spirit, in the, in the spirit of the planet, in the spirit of creation, in the spirit of our work together, and I nurture that in my life. Um, so why are you not paying attention to that if you're trying to think about how religion and spirituality might be different now? And I thought, oh, wow, um, how small is my mind and how can I make it bigger? Um, and so when I um, started uh, interviewing people across the country, I um, expanded the scope of my research to include both people who um, identified as having some kind of belief in a supernatural being or power, as well as those who did not. And I, I cast a pretty wide net and said, if you think of yourself as somebody who has a spiritual life, um, I don't really care how you define that. Um, I want to have a conversation with you, and I'm interested in finding out about that. And, and a number of those people also identified as atheist or secular or secular humanist or other kinds of things that would fall under a non-theistic umbrella. So here's a question for you. Every time I hear someone say I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, or they say I'm an atheist with a spiritual side, I mean, I have the same reaction as if you told me you were super religious and this is specifically what you believe. Like, I just roll my eyes. It's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You believe in some nonsense that doesn't make sense. And I'm I'm very admittedly dismissive when someone says they're spiritual. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking specifically about atheists who have these this spiritual side or they're connecting with nature, what exactly is it that they believe or what are they doing with this belief? But you know what? I think First off, our hang-up with belief as the category that defines religiosity and spirituality is incredibly problematic. You know, that's that's an Enlightenment legacy that, you know, and that certainly comes with um, Enlightenment um, humanism that, of course, is, is a Christian construct, um, right? Humanism is a, is a product of, of late medieval Christianity. Um, but... The, you know, the idea that through the Enlightenment that human reason will allow us to understand things in the world that previously were under the purview of the church, um, you know, became this sort of defining feature of both um, religion and those things that came to be understood as outside religion, the secular, also a religious concept, um, right? Um, and we've spent a lot of time talking about about the cognitive structures of of people's lives, how they how they make truth claims about reality as the marker of whether they are or not or are not religious. So both for people who are theistic and who are not theistic, what I saw in my research and other researchers have seen as well, is that the category of belief itself is perhaps not the predominant category with which to understand all of those kinds of activities that we have put into the category of religion. So, for example, um, caring about the future, which in um, theistic traditions and non-theistic religious traditions, 
uh, but traditions with a with belief in a supernatural power um, or being. You know, the idea of what happens after we're dead, um, not just to our physical bodies, but what happens to the planet? How do we sustain the planet? How do we have hope for a future of the planet? Come into the category of how do we handle eternity, right? What's, um, you know, the, the theological term is soteriology. What happens to us in the future? Um, what is What does it mean to to live now in a way that sustains the future. Well, for many of the, the people I talked to who identified as atheist or secular or secular humanist, um, that was still a vital category, right? People care about the earth. They know that they have, you know, many of them have children, their children will have children and other people have children. We want the earth to be around and to be sustainable. And we want critters to be here and the water to be clean and all of those kinds of things. So, for example, for one of the people I interviewed in the book who was a science teacher um, in, in um, middle school, you know, he really tried to reappropriate categories that he felt were co-opted by um, religious traditions in terms of belief. Like if you if you believe in eternity, you have to believe that a god is sustaining eternity. eternity. Um, and he rather encouraged students to think about eternity as something that we create together. So this goes back. We nurture the earth. So this goes back to a. I've heard some religious people say, you know, I be, they'll say I believe in God, but my God is if you love somebody, God is there. Mm-hmm. Or if you look in a meadow all the beautiful grass, the scenery, that's God. And it's like, at that point, you're defining God so, you're stretching it so thin and broadly that it kind of means nothing anymore. And it almost sounds like this atheist spirituality that you're referring to, it almost does that. Like, yeah, I care about my future. I care about my kids and my grandkids. To me, that's not spirituality. That I don't know what you call that, but it doesn't seem like spirituality to me. No. But you're saying that for some other people, that is what they consider their spirituality. Uh, Am I yeah. having that right? And, and I'll tell you, too, there's a discursive problem in this. There's a problem in the limits of language, right? Mm. And that, that tends to play out in two ways. One is that a lot of the people that I talked with, and you see this a lot in research about the thinning of religious commitment, particularly in Christianity, um, we'll say, uh, we'll use the, the marker or whatever. So, yeah, I think of myself as spiritual or whatever, um, or I, I sort of believe in some kind of higher power or whatever. And a lot of people think of that as this sort of dismissive, thin, um, you know, vacuous, woo-woo kind of, you don't care about anything sort of thing. Um, but when I pressed people and said, let's really talk about that, what that or whatever is, what emerged from that was the language for talking about things that um, we don't quite understand yet, but we have a felt sense of. Um, and we um, have a commitment to um, living our lives in some kind of relationship to figuring that out, um, not necessarily in an empirical way, but just sort of attending to it, the language for that is pretty much owned by 
traditional religions. Sure. So we'll and use so the people, word spirituality, but we certainly don't as, like mean it the way religious people might mean it. Exactly. So people will say, well, spiritual or whatever, because I don't want to say spiritual because it has all this baggage that comes with it. In fact, I went to a, a meeting right after I got the first wave of emails from atheists and, and um, other non-religious people, non-conventionally re- religious people, I guess, depending on how you see that. Um, I went to a meeting of secular humanists in Palo Alto, and they were doing a talk that week on secular spirituality. And when I talked to people during the coffee time afterwards, you know, they were pretty much split on it. A lot of people felt like, you know what, it's a slippery slope. If we start saying these religious words, then people are, you know, people are going to think we're these sort of woo-woo California nutballs who, you know, <laughs> don't believe in anything. Um, and other people felt like, you know, until we have a language that describes this um, as something other than a set of propositional beliefs, as a cognitive project, this is the language we have, and there's no reason we shouldn't use it. If, if, if God is just a cultural and linguistic construct for describing some ways that we talk about things we don't understand, um, the mysteries of life, um, the possibilities of the future, all of those kinds of things, if spirituality fits into there, then that's the language we're going to inhabit. And in the process, we're going to change what it means. I'm curious, and obviously this would be anecdotal, but did you notice, did you notice people who call themselves spiritual, did they tend to be raised by parents who also use the word spiritual, or were they kind of coming into non-religion from a religious upbringing? Because my, I oh, guess, oh no, I'm... I mean, very few of the people I talked with, and very few of the unaffiliated, um, you know, come from non-religious families. Um, I think maybe three people in my study came from nominally or non-religious backgrounds. Um, the majority of, of nuns come from religious backgrounds, most mostly Christian. So, you know, we know that Christian churches are the factories for nuns in terms of, of preparing people for unaffiliation in all kinds of different ways for good and for ill, depending on your perspective on that. So, yeah, nuns are manufactured in churches. I guess I'm I'm just wondering, the same way a lot of people I know who say I don't believe in God, but I don't like the word atheist, I prefer agnostic or non-believer or humanist. I wonder if like saying, yeah, I don't believe in God, but I'm spiritual is sort of a way to hold on to those family traditions they have or that feeling, that, that churchy feeling that You just don't get the get. stigma when you say, yeah. I'm spiritual, oh, yeah. but I'm not religious. You know, one of, the, one of the people I interviewed was a woman who is, you know, um, identifies as an atheist personally, um, but works for a social services agency that does a lot of work, work with religious groups. And she talked about this idea of sort of performing prayer. She said, you know, social services people bust out prayer in a minute. They're always praying. Um, and so you can do this sort of polite, I'm going to bow my head with you kind of thing. Or you can, um, you know, sort of step aside, protest it by not being part of it. And she said, but for me, I just, you know, I honor what it does socially. And I also honor that I don't believe in what it's purported to do metaphysically. Um, and so she said, I'll, I'll bust out a prayer in a minute because it gathers people together. Mm-hmm. It says some wonderful words about how we're spending some time together. And I will call it prayer. I will claim that language. It doesn't harm me in any way. Mm-hmm. And it reinforces relationships. Now, 
there are there are religious people who have read that portion of the book and have been furious with this woman, you know, <laughs> that she's somehow duping the religious into thinking that she's actually praying with them, expecting to act on a supernatural being. And she just doesn't believe that she's doing that. She would never lie to anybody about who she is spiritually, but she doesn't think the language is worth arguing over. Arguing over the language, the concept of prayer, um, this notion of whether there's a supernatural being or not was not productive in terms of the relationship she wanted to nurture and maintain. Um, and I think that, you know, we're seeing in this most recent, uh, uh, recent Pew report um, on some of the data it collected last year, um, you know, the, the headline on that is many Americans don't argue about religion or even talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. But the category itself is less and less productive socially. Um, the arguments about it we know are, are not really changing people's minds and hearts, the sort of let's take this belief-based stance on it. But practices, being with people, do reinforce relationships. And in a, an increasingly cosmopolitan world where we're all called upon to be together with lots of different people in lots of different ways, there are categories of practice like prayer that do certain kinds of social work. Um, and the, the woman I interviewed, I call Alicia in the book, um, really was calling on that when she talked about prayer. And she didn't feel duplicitous at all about it. I'm curious, the people who you said reacted negatively to a woman who said she would also bow her head and, and take the prayer, I'm do you have a sense of what they would think is appropriate? I know if I'm at a church or at a wedding or something like that, I'll sit quietly and stare forward. I don't bow my head. I don't make any scene or anything. I just sit there quietly and let, you know, let them do their thing, I guess. Is that more appropriate, do you think, or less because I'm visibly not participating? I think it depends on the context, right? And I mm -hmm. think that, um, you know, if it, if it, um, damages relationships to behave in a, a particular way, for some people, that's going to feel inappropriate. For other people, it's going to feel like, I don't want to be in a relationship where I can't be authentic about mm -hmm. how I do it, you know, whether that's my beliefs or just how I feel about it. I mean, there are people I interviewed who came out of religious backgrounds um, that were um, difficult and damaging um, and for whom the category of prayer was almost, a, you know, a post-traumatic category. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the women I interviewed had been, you know, taken into an intervention with her pastor um, when she came out as a lesbian, and he literally had a group of people pray over and slapped her in the face. <sighs> so for her, when the, when the, you know, the word prayer came up, you know, she just had this trauma response to it. And so pretending to participate in that for, for Darnese, I don't think would be a, a valid sort of practice. It wouldn't be appropriate for her regardless of the setting. And, of course, we all can be, you know, respectful of other people in lots of different ways. You don't have to get up shouting and screaming, a prayer is false and evil. It's not about. <laughs> That's what I did the last um, wedding I went to. Depending yeah. on the circumstances. But, <laughs> uh, right. Um, but, you know, people, you, you make choices in terms of how, how you value the relationships that you're in. And I think the category of prayer is one of these places where um, we're really seeing 
the definition of what it means to be religious or spiritual or um, how that works in the world changing dramatically. Um, you know, we see all the time just, um, you know, over the last, um, you know, few months in the spring um, when, um, you know, people in Ecuador were suffering through the Paris attacks. You'd see on, on Twitter the hashtag, pray for Paris, pray for Ecuador. Um, I, I have to believe, um, and, I, and I, you know, know from talking with lots of people um, about this, that most of those people are not um, expressing a desire oriented toward a supernatural being who is being called upon to intervene in those places. They're expressing a sense of being aware of a tragedy in the world, um, having uh, a paradoxical sense of both hope and anxiety about it, and of being in solidarity with people, and lots of other really complex things that don't map to traditional religious understandings of prayer as a petition or praise to a it, supernatural being. It goes and back to your comment. Itself, it it goes back to your comment about language. We don't necessarily have the language about mourning or dealing with tragedy that's outside of religion. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to say, "I'll pray for you. Yeah. Rest in peace," even though I know you don't have no, you don't right. have a conscience. But it's easy to say right. that sort of thing. Exactly. And so people over and over again said, "When I'm saying I'm praying for you, it's, it means something different." whether I'm an atheist or not, <laughs> then if I say I'm thinking about you. It so, just wh- does. And maybe new language will emerge for that, or maybe that language will become a more generalized term that relates to the human spirit rather than to supernatural spirits. One of the things that's very powerful about religion is that uh, so many people are raised in the religion their parents raised them in. I mean, so you could be like a fifth, sixth generation Mormon mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. Do you? I don't know if it's too early to tell this, but if you're a spiritual couple or you're a spiritual person married to another nun who's who has some spirituality, is this the sort of thing that gets passed down generation after generation, this nebulous spirituality thing? Because it's not steeped in anything concrete. It's, it's so defined by whatever the hell you want it to be mm-hmm. that I don't know if it could be passed down. Well, you know what? I mean, so here's the thing about that five generations of Mormons or whatever. Yeah, that happens. That's a thing. Um, but we know historically in the United States and in Europe before the United States was formed as a nation, right, that um, religious affiliation to the, extent, to the extent that it formally existed was enforced through violence or the threat of violence. Hmm. And when people had the option not to, pretty consistently, when we look at church roles in pre-modern Europe and we look at the development of religious communities in the United States and and affiliation with them in the United States, pretty consistently across the board, the high watermark for religious affiliation was about 20%. If people have an actual choice, about 20% of people actually showed up at church. And we know that people lie by about half in the United States (laughs) by about as much about how much they go to church in Europe. They lie about not going to church. (laughs) Religion Um, tells you to tell the truth about everything except going to church. So we know that this, this sense of normal levels of religious affiliation at somewhere around 60, 70, 80% 
is a function of a lot of social and political forces in the 1950s and, and sure. 1960s that goosed up affiliation. It was sort of the last time that people could be politically coerced to be religious. So this idea that, yeah, religious identity is handed down from generation to generation to generation, yes, there's some sense of that, and that is clearly beginning to fray. Um, the Pew data makes that very clear. Um, but it is also the case that we're seeing uh, a return, I think, to um, a more normalized level of fervent religious affiliation, which is at about 20 percent. You know, that really has been um, the, the reality for most of human history that we, most of recorded history, um, where we've been tracking religious affiliation. So, yeah, there's less generational re replacement, but it's not so much that um, families are, you know, subtracting religion from their lives. It's that without the threat of violence or actual violence mm -hmm. and without a strong sense of hell or damnation or all of those kinds of things, right? I always tell churches when I talk about this, if you really want to bring people back in, you really need to do some marketing on hell, <laughs> right? Um, without that, um, about 20% of the people identify and and practice religion with some regularity. And so I think we're going to come back to that normal. I have one last question for you. Because you're a college professor, you're kind of at the front lines of a lot of young people who are, I mean, we, the demographics that we see keep saying that the younger you are, the less religious you tend to be. What have you noticed in your career, especially over the past decade, when it comes to the students you teach? Are they a lot less religious now than they used to be back then? And how does that affect what you're seeing with the spirituality idea? Yeah, well, I should say I probably misspoke about the threat of violence and a strong sense of hell being the two things that produce religiosity. The third huh. thing would be a religion requirement oh, of course. Um, in a Jesuit <laughs> university, which is where I teach. So our students are required to take three religion classes, which I refer to as the Religious Studies Scholars Full Employment Act. Um, <laughs> so they, they otherwise would not. And in the six years that... I've been at Santa Clara. I and all of my all of my colleagues have seen, um, you know, less and less professed religious identification and affiliation. Now, some of that's I just came to college and I get to do it on my own. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems more durable across the four years of college life, and um, the idea that religion is a thing that is important to understand in the world. And I think this is a big problem. Um, for young people as they enter into a religiously complex world. But the idea that religion is even a thing they should pay attention to yeah. um, for um, any kind of social, cultural, or moral understanding is certainly waning. I mean, I would say that um, more than half of my students now at all levels identify as religiously unaffiliated, and I don't think that's abnormal in my university. Well, we'll Where, high five you know, to that. More than half of Ooh. our students come in from a religious education background. Right. I mean, it is. I mean, I'm I'm giddy inside that they are less religious. But you're right. It is scary that they think religion isn't a thing they need to know about. Yeah. Because you're right. So much of the conflict we see in the world is kind of based in religious beliefs, even domestic conflicts, like whether it's 
go into a bathroom that you're not supposed to go into, whatever. I mean, they're so steeped in <laughs> religion that you need to understand what people believe, why they believe it, what motivates them. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of and scary they that they do. don't pay attention. Like, again, you know, I think the thing that I saw predominantly is that the focus on belief really is shifting. How are people coming to a sense of fullness in their lives, a sense of possibility, a sense of hope, what kinds of things that they do? Um, and not paying attention to that is a really big deal. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And again, your book is called Choosing Our Religion, The Spiritual Lives of America's Nuns. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. We were brought to you today by Foundation Marketing. If you own a small business, then you know how frustrating advertising can be. Foundation Marketing offers all-encompassing solutions backed by 20 years' experience. This includes professional web design, graphic design, printing, and online marketing solutions. They are a certified Google partner and offer free consultation. Visit them online at fmkg.net. Let them know you were sent by the Friendly Atheist Podcast, and you'll get 10% off any sale. They're also donating 20% of all sales driven by this podcast to the Clergy Project and Foundation Beyond Belief, 10% each. Once again, check them out at fmkg.net. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash That's he-man-t. We appreciate your support. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at friendlyatheistpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you join us next time. 